Well, good afternoon, church. Happy Father's Day. It is a pleasure to be able to speak from God's word, from our true and best, only uh, good father. So today, I want to start describing a situation we've all been in, where we've seen someone that we know and we ask them how they're doing, and they respond with something like, man, I'm just tired. You can see it in their eyes and hear it in their voice that this isn't the kind of tired that they can just sleep off. We've all been there. Maybe you have responded in a similar way recently. And it's hard to articulate in the moment, but wrapped up in that response is something much deeper. It's like when you're tired of the anxiety that haunts you, even though over and over again you tell yourself there's nothing to fear. When you're tired of the constant pressure to perform and you're not sure if you're strong enough or good enough to keep going, to keep up the facade. When you look around at other couples and families and they, their marriages seem so good and their children seem so obedient, but you feel like you're just hanging on by a thread. And you wonder, what's wrong with me? Why can't I get it together? Why can't I figure this out? When you're confused as to why other people are finding great dating relationships, but you seem to always find yourself alone. Maybe you're confused and emotionally exhausted because a loved one has hurt you or rejected you or mistreated you. And you're tired of trying to figure out why this happened and if there's any possible way that the broken pieces can be redeemed. Or perhaps you're the one who's done something wrong. And you're tired of failing. You're tired of falling for the same temptation, the same mistakes over and over again. Or maybe you're just tired of looking around at all the pain and the brokenness and you're wondering, what's the point? Is there even any hope for goodness to flourish? Is there any hope for me in such a place? Well, what do you do when you're tired? Where do you turn when you're confused? Where do you go when you're looking for hope? You can probably find an endless number and variety of suggestions on what to do when you're exhausted and confused and you feel hopeless. There are people all over the place. Any sort of media you can think of, they're offering you a myriad of answers, saying, yes, I know what will finally satisfy you. If you don't consider yourself a Christian today, I want to welcome you and thank you for taking the time to be with us on Father's Day. We have prayed for you, and we believe that it's not a coincidence that you are here. We believe that God has something to say to you today. But I wonder how you would answer these questions. Of all the ways that you have tried to find fulfillment and hope, to bring life out of darkness, when they all end in disappointment, what then? Are you tired of searching? If I may be so bold, I would contend that you can search all you want, but you're never going to find what you're looking for apart from God's word. 
The God of the Bible is the God who created all things, and he created you to worship him and to enjoy him as he covers you with his love. He is the only one who can satisfy the longings of our souls. And today, we're going to look at Psalm 23 and see how the Lord comforts us, how he guides us, how he gives us hope in the midst of the darkness of this world. If you're using one of the the blue Bibles that's provided in, in the seats, Psalm 23 is on page 458. Also, if you do not have a Bible at home that you can read, please take one of those Bibles home with you. It's our gift to you, as long as you promise to read it. As many of you know, though, Psalm 23 is one of the most, if not the most, well-known and loved psalms among Christians throughout the world and throughout history. By a show of hands, who's, who uh, thinks that Psalm 23 is their favorite or top three psalms? How many of you have memorized Psalm 23 at some point in your life? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Many have found this psalm to be a source of comfort and inspiration, and in many circumstances, both good and bad. So I pray that you'll find it a blessing as I talk about it today. So let's read it now. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, we don't have much background information for this psalm other than the fact that it was written by King David of Israel. And David started out as a shepherd before the Lord anointed him as his chosen king to lead Israel. God made a special covenant with David that one of his sons would rule over his people forever. And David's trust in the Lord was evident throughout his life. However, David's life was full of struggles and trials. It was full of tragedies and disappointments. But the Lord was clearly with him and blessed him in many ways. And so David knew what it meant to go through the valley of the shadow of death. He also knew God's care for him. Also, the literary context for this psalm means where it's placed in relation to other psalms. It's noteworthy because of the one that comes before it, but I will get into that a little bit more later as we go through it. So before we get into it, I'm going to give you an outline so that you know where we're going. So we can see from this passage three reasons that we should turn to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, when we're tired, lost, and without hope. Three reasons that we should go to God in times of trouble. Number one, the Lord is our shepherd. 
That's from verse 1 and 2. The Lord is our shepherd. Number two, the Lord is our guide. That's from verse 3 and 4. The Lord is our guide. And number three, the Lord is our king and friend. The Lord is our king and friend. That's from verse 5 and 6. Now Psalm 23 begins with a declaration, the Lord is my shepherd, which is actually uncommon in the Psalms. This is the first time in the Psalms that God is referred to as a shepherd, and it's much more intimate than any other metaphor used of God thus far. But it fits with what we know of David, right? Since he was a shepherd before he was a king. David knew all about how to take care of sheep. He knew all about them, but he frankly, he also knew how needy they are. So if you've known anyone who actually takes care of sheep, which I have, they'll tell you that sheep are dumb. Sheep are weak, they're anxious, they're fearful, and they're oblivious. They're afraid of things that don't matter, and they're oblivious to real danger. And they're too dumb and weak to know the difference, even if they did or could tell the difference. And they'll follow each other off a cliff, one by one, not realizing what lays ahead of them. But, as many of you know, sheep are the most commonly used metaphor in the Bible for human beings. So let that one marinate for a second. The point here is not just that we are sheep. The point is that God is the perfect shepherd. See, David says, I shall not want. That means all of his needs will be met. The shepherd leads us to green pastures. He provides for us. The shepherd leads us to still waters. In the original language, it literally says waters of rest. So it's saying that God leads us to a place of rest and abundance and restoration. So also, looking at this psalm now through the lens of us as Christians... We have a fuller understanding of the truth that this metaphor is trying to point to. Just as Naranda read from John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And when Jesus said this, he wasn't just saying that he cared about his followers. He was displaying the fact that he is God. He is the only perfect shepherd who can lead his sheep to true rest forever in a direct reference to this song. Jesus loves his sheep, even to the point of laying down his life for them. Again, we'll get into that a little more in a minute. But we can learn a lot from this metaphor. And to be honest, for a long time, I didn't really care that much about Psalm 23. I thought it was too sentimental and geared towards people who were weak and who were too scared to deal with what life brought their way. So as I I meditated on this psalm, trying to think about what changed in my perception to what it is now, I had to confess that the reason that I never thought too much about it, I mean, I would have given lip service to this, but deep down, I didn't really see myself as a sheep. I didn't really fully understand my need for a shepherd. My pride was too great for that. And uh, as all the men my age or older, in the room can relate to, when I was a young man, I realize now that I thought a lot of things that were, well, dumb. And by God's grace, he's given me 
many experiences that have proved to me how weak and fearful and oblivious I really am and how hopeless I am without a shepherd. But praise the Lord that the good shepherd doesn't leave us when we stray. And we can trust in him because he pursues us and he brings us back into his flock and he leads us to those waters of rest. In the same way, for all of us, we must first understand ourselves to be sheep if we are going to appreciate what this psalm is saying. If you overvalue individual strength and independence and ambition like I did, you're going to miss some very important truths and make some very poor decisions. The first truth you're going to miss is that you are a sheep, and sheep can't survive without a shepherd. And you may try to fool yourself for a while, but life will make this fact undeniable to you at some point. Second, sheep should never be apart from their flock. Sheep are safe when they're together. But a sheep that's alone is a sheep that is in danger. It's a sheep that's about to be devoured by wolves or thieves or some other predator. And this is why we talk about discipleship so much. Why we often exhort you to not isolate yourself from other believers. Don't isolate yourself from those who can love you and care for you and hold you accountable. Often when we sin or when we want to sin, our natural response is to isolate ourselves. We stop doing things with the people that we know are going to call us out. We stop coming to church. But friends, you're actually putting yourself in more danger by doing this than being willing to just confess your sin to those who love you and are following the Good Shepherd with you. And the third truth, there are only two categories of people in Scripture when it comes to this metaphor. There are sheep that are with the shepherd and there are sheep that are with the wolves. And if you're not trusting the Good Shepherd, you're either being devoured by the wolves or you're becoming one. These are the only two possibilities. And this is true for you on a personal level. It's also true for you when it comes to those who you love. So this goes for anyone in a leadership position. It goes for anyone who is a parent. But on Father's Day, I want to especially challenge the fathers in the room. Sadly, too many of us have experienced this firsthand from our own fathers, who were either wolves themselves or who were neglectful leaders. But if you're not leading your wives and your family to the Good Shepherd, making it clear that you are just another sheep, then you're leaving them to the wolves. And if you are not actively encouraging them to lean on Christ, then don't be surprised when they're devoured by the world. But if we zoom back out and consider these two verses, understand that these verses are giving us a picture of God's character. And so they're not saying that he's going to lead us to rest right now all the time. And he's not going to provide every need right now all the time. It's showing us the fact that he is a good God and that no matter what your circumstances look like right now, you can trust that he will lead you to those waters of rest one day. He will lead you there and he will take care of every need that you have.
But that leads us to our second point, that the Lord is our guide. See, in verse 3, it starts out, it says, He restores my soul. And this restoration of the soul can relate to the first point, of course, that God gives us rest and that this rest can be that type of refreshing that we experience in physical ways, in uh, emotional ways, in mental ways, even now. But it's not always that type of rest. And in fact, it's often not that type of rest in this life. The rest that we experience now, all the time, is a spiritual rest that's beyond normal human understanding. It's a rest that lasts, that persists, even when our physical surroundings are not restful. This rest is a firm confidence in the Lord that He is who He says He is, and that He's faithful to keep His promises, and that He will not leave us to the wolves. So interestingly, as you read through the Bible, when, when it speaks of God fulfilling our needs, it never focuses just on our physical needs or our emotional or intellectual needs. Even when the passage uh, has a prominent feature of our physical needs, when it comes to God's care for his sheep, for his children, it always goes beyond the physical to the spiritual. It never stops at just satisfying the body. And note, for the sake of what I'm talking about here, I'm lumping those emotional and intellectual needs in with the physical because they all have to do with that part of who we are that is distinct from our spirit or our soul. The old school word for that is carnal. Uh, it just means that things have to do with the flesh or things that are worldly. And so this includes our physical bodies, our minds, and our emotions as they relate to the world instead of God. However, there's one thing that has to be taken care of before we can experience that spiritual rest that I'm talking about. There is a moral and a relational component to this restoration that is the foundation for everything else. And that's why the next phrase speaks about the Lord leading us in paths of righteousness. See, God created us. He knows we're more than just a body. He knows everything about us, our thoughts, our emotions, our desires, our fears. And he knows that our deepest need is spiritual. And meaning, our deepest need is restoration of the relationship with our Creator so that we may love him and worship him and enjoy him the way we were created to. This need is in our soul, or in our heart, you could say. This need has to do with our deepest desires, what we truly love, what we worship. But the reason that we need restoration, and that's the main problem that every single one of us faces, it's our own sin. Our hearts are corrupted by sin which at its core is just rebellion against God and his ways. Our hearts desire things that God says are wicked, and our souls worship idols that lie to us and twist God's truth. Things like wealth and power, comfort and pleasure, personal autonomy. And we destroy his creation for the sake of our own selfish gain. You see, God is righteous and he is holy. And one cannot be in God's presence without being righteous and holy like he is. And therefore, we are unable to dwell with God unless we are made righteous and holy. And so, in the first sentence of this verse, when it says, He restores my soul, it serves as a transition for us from the metaphor of the shepherd, 
which brings us rest to the guide who leads us in the paths of righteousness. From the restoration of our bodies and our minds to the restoration of our souls, the restoration of that spiritual life that we lost at the fall, the restoration of our relationship with God. The problem is we can't do this on our own. We don't know the way to righteousness because we're not righteous. So the image that's behind that word used there is paths and paths of righteousness. It's like the, the beaten down tracks on a dirt road that a, a wagon or a cart would make after driving over it over and over. That's why it's plural, by the way. It, it's not that there's multiple paths of righteousness. It's that those are the two tracks that lie in parallel uh, that, that you would drive on. And so this path has, laid out, has been laid out for us. God has given us the map. He's given us the road map to righteousness in his word. But in our, our present state, we can't find the path of righteousness because we've wandered so far in every other path that looks like it might be the way. But they all end up leading us to pits that we fall into and we can't get out. Or dead ends from which we don't know where to turn. We've followed every other guidebook, every other flatterer that promises deliver deliverance only to find out that it's a lie. And so we've been twisted so that we can't even interpret God's word the right way when we have it. And the next verse gives us the reason for that, why we can't do this. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The literal words there are the valley of deep darkness or deep gloom. And every one of us has to go through this valley. Every one of us is born into this deep darkness. Because of our willful rebellion against God, we've been blinded by our sin. Our minds and our hearts are darkened. There's no other way for us but through this valley. And if you're honest with yourself, this is evident when you just take a pause and look at the world around you, isn't it? There's so much strife and conflict and confusion, so much sadness and fear everywhere you turn. And that's true outside of you. It's true inside of your own heart. While there are many who seem to have good ideas, claim to have knowledge about how to live the good life, how to find happiness or fulfillment, how to make the world a better place, do you ever feel like no matter what they say or what they do, that things only get worse? I don't care if it's Trump or Bernie or anyone in between. Politicians can't figure it out. I don't care if you have the wealth of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos put together. You can't buy your way out either. So pick your favorite philosopher, talk show host, influencer, your favorite author, favorite doctor, religious guru. None of them have been able to cure the deadness of the human soul and none of them have been able to keep you from the corruption of the world. And none of them can keep you from the inevitable fact that you will die someday. And then you'll have to answer to your creator for how you've lived this life. No, like I said before, no one in this world knows the way out of darkness because they can't see either. And the reality is, I think you know as well as I do, is that there is no way out of this darkness. Unless, of course, you have someone to guide you who has already been through it who has been through the valley and who has conquered the valley 
and who knows the way to eternal life. And there is only one person who has done that. Hallelujah. It's Jesus Christ. And this is why, by the way, the placement of this psalm after Psalm 22 is noteworthy. See, we learned last week that Psalm 22 is the most specific and the most graphic depiction of crucifixion that we have in the Bible. But it was written a thousand years before Christ came. So we know it couldn't have been David that is depicted there unless it's just metaphorically talking about what he feels. But these things literally happened to Jesus Christ. See, Psalm 22 prophesied the suffering of the Messiah who would come to save us from our sin. And so, Psalm 23 would not be possible without Psalm 22. Jesus Christ is our good shepherd. He's the one who leads us to rest. He is our guide to lead us through the valley because he walked through it himself first. He walked through the deepest, darkest part of it, the most impossible, the most unimaginable part of it. And he conquered the valley. He conquered the darkness, and he came out on the other side victorious. So this is the core of the gospel. This is the good news. This is why we're here. It's the story that the Bible is all about. This is the hope that we as Christians have. It's what we get excited about. It's why we come to church, to sing to God, to pray to God, and to listen to someone preach for 40 minutes. You see, every one of us has sinned and rebelled against this holy God, and we deserve to die forever. See, that's what hell is, really. It's just eternal death apart from God's gracious presence. That's what we all deserve, and it's what every one of us would get if not for the love and grace of God in Christ on the cross. He is the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. God himself became man in Jesus Christ, and he died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. He took the punishment that we deserve. He became our substitute. And then he rose again on the third day, and he conquered sin and death. And so the Bible says that if we repent of our sin, which means we turn away from following our own selfish desires, from trying to find our own way, and if we trust in Christ, then Christ takes that sin upon himself, and he gives us his righteousness so that we no longer have to fear death, but instead he promises us eternal life with God. And that's why the psalmist can confidently declare, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you, the Lord, my God, my Savior, are with me. My shepherd guides me. With his staff, he keeps me from going astray. With his rod, he protects me from danger. He is my source of comfort, even in the middle of the darkness. So if you're not a Christian, or if you've never repented of your sin and trusted in Christ as your Savior, and you want to know more about what that means, please don't leave today without talking to one of us pastors at the doors. Uh, we would love to talk to you more about that. Talk to one of our members who's smiling beside you. There is no other source of true hope there's no other way out of the circumstances that we're in other than Jesus Christ. There's no other way to eternal life. But if you're a, a believer today, let me encourage you to cling to this truth even when the darkness seems overwhelming through difficult circumstances. 
remember that the Lord is our light. And he is our guide, and he's our shepherd, and he's the one who gives us rest, who leads us on the right path. Go to him. Lean on him through prayer, through scripture, through other Christians, other sheep. Lean on him like your life depends on it, because it does. But also, when you consider the darkness around us, remember that we have the message of hope. And this applies to any circumstance we encounter. But the easiest example right now is to think of all the stuff going on for Pride Month. The world is brazenly celebrating all kinds of promiscuous and perverted things that it's clear in Scripture that God says are wickedness in his eyes. And many have called that out, including us, and we're right to do that. But remember that these people are lost. They're blind sheep leading each other through a valley of darkness. And one by one, they're following each other into the wolf's den. They're going to be devoured, and they have no hope. They have no alternative apart from Christ. And remember that we were once just like them before the Lord opened our eyes. And so treat them with love and mercy and patience and bring them this message. Remember, we have nothing to fear. Our God is with us, and he will lead us to the end. But now that brings us to our third point. The Lord is our king and our friend. So if you look back at verse 5 and 6, it says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So the picture we have here is of a host preparing a meal, showing hospitality to his guests. And in the culture in which this was written, that was a big deal to share a meal with someone in your home. It was a very significant thing. It was usually a mark of, of strong friendship or it was a, a mark of a, a, a sealing, a formal sealing of some sort of relationship uh, that had to do with ratifying a covenant or an agreement. So this meal in the psalm perhaps isn't necessarily ratifying a covenant, but you could say it's the sealing of a strong friendship that was based on God's covenant with David and his covenant with Israel. And then the fact that the Lord is anointing the author's head with oil, it, it emphasizes that this is a really special relationship because to do that would be a very special blessing, essentially putting that person in a place of honor. What's more amazing, don't gloss over the fact that the host here is God himself. This is our heavenly king. He's the one preparing the table. And that's why, in this point, I had to put king and friend. They go together here in a way that is astounding if you really think about it. The king of all the universe is lifting up a person as his friend and honored guest. So stay with me here, because there are a few lines of thought that meet here. See, the first thing you have to understand is that when it says that he prepares a table before, uh, or before me in the presence of my enemies, this isn't talking about some high-pressure situation where uh, the psalmist might be in trouble and the Lord is still blesses him and gets one over on the, the people that are trying to hurt him. No, when you think about the anointing, and you think about his cup overflowing. These are always references 
to abundance and festivity. See, the, the, what it's talking about here is a victory celebration. The kind of celebration that a king would throw uh, after having won an important battle and totally conquering his enemy and forcing his enemy to watch as he throws a party. That's what's going on here. And there's so much biblical theology here, but I'll try to summarize it quickly. David may be metaphorically describing uh, his his own experience conquering physical enemies, but remember that this is foreshadowing something about the Messiah. So in the broader context of the psalm and the ones before it, this, once again, is showing us a part of the gospel. This special anointed guest that's being honored is ultimately Jesus Christ. He's the enemy that conquered sin and death. And he obliterated them. And this is where it becomes relevant to us. The New Testament says that if we trust in Christ, we are made one with him. So that if Christ is the honored guest, we share in that celebration. We too become honored guests in the house of the, of the king. But David even takes it a step further. He's not just talking about one celebration. He's talking about dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. And he can say with confidence, because he knows that it isn't because of anything that he's done, but because of God's love and mercy. And that word translated mercy there is hesed. We often talk about that. It means steadfast love or God's covenant love. And where it says that that Love and mercy will follow me. That's an active word. Probably better translated, pursue me. So he's saying that God's steadfast covenant love pursues him all the days of his life. And just like David, this is our hope. In fact, the only reason that we can have faith is because God pursues us with this steadfast covenant love. Otherwise, we would continue to be lost and we would continue to reject him. So what a blessing it is to trust in the Lord's salvation. What an amazing promise it is that we might dwell in the house of the King of Kings forever. No more sin, no more pain, no more death, no more tiredness. This is what heaven is, folks. Revelation depicts it as a marriage feast, celebrating our union with Christ for eternity. And Christians, I hope you think about this often. To be honest, when I'm struggling with things going on around me or when I'm struggling when I've screwed up and it causes me to doubt, I don't know how people get through it without this hope. My hope of being with the Lord someday is is what carries me through. And some of you may think that this is just pie-in-the-sky stuff to make us feel better when we can't deal with things on our own. Perhaps... I can see why you think that. But it could also be that this is what we were created for. And when you get to the end of yourself and your strength is spent and your pride is broken, I pray that you will remember that you can turn to Jesus Christ and he will welcome you and he will be happy to be your shepherd, your guide, your king, and your friend. So let's pray.
Heavenly Father, you are our good shepherd. Christ Jesus, you are our savior. We come to you as broken and exhausted people and you lift us up. You hold us in a place of honor that we don't deserve, but only by Christ's righteousness and his grace on the cross that we can even think to dwell with you. Oh Lord, cause us to come to you as our shepherd when we are confused and we are tired and we feel hopeless. Let us not forget, Lord, that you are our shepherd and our guide, that you are our friend and you are our king. Oh Lord, we praise you now because you are the holy and righteous one. And Lord, we ask that you show us your presence in our soul with that spiritual rest every day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.